You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks for listening to the podcast. My new tour show, Like I Mean It, starts its life at the Edinburgh Festival every day from the 5th to the 27th at the Liquid Rooms Annex. Tickets are non-existent and entrance is completely free, but you'll probably want to bring some money. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm very pleased to be bringing you the last of this year's run of live podcasts at the Soho Theatre, uh, for which I'm very happy to thank everyone that uh, helped arrange this interview, my dear friend Thelma, and everyone at the Soho Theatre team who look after the comedy there, Steve, Kitty and Lee and uh, all of those guys. So thank you very much for your help in, uh, in sorting this live show out. This was an absolute dream and at the end of the show uh, you will hear some absolutely, it was the perfect ending to a very lovely interview, um, some really excellent uh, advice for a listener who was about to go and do their first ever open mic, uh, a member of the audience who was about to go and do their first ever open mic the day after the show. So listen out for that. There's some terrific advice, uh, particularly on managing pre-gig anxiety, which you'll remember I spoke a little bit about last week in a different sort of a context. This is the absolutely legendary Joe Brand. It gives me enormous pride and pleasure to ask you to welcome to the stage uh, an absolute heroine of comedy. Would you please give it up for Joe Brand? Hello. Thank you for coming, Joe. Pleasure. Um, I'm going to start with... Um, now, this is always dangerous, because whenever I, I, whenever I tell comics something that uh, is known about them on the circuit or something they're known for doing, it fairly often turns out not to be the case. It turns out to be sort of scurrilous rumour-mongering. Is it that I'm nice? Well, <laughs> do you know, it sort of is, because... Wrong. You're... You're known for the two things that most immediately spring to my mind when I think of you in terms of the comedy circuit, obviously, other than your, your performance, uh, is that you are known for, when you're on tour, you pay your support acts like a decent fee that's related to how many people are in the audience rather than a stingy flat rate. Is that true? Mm. Yes, yeah. you grudgingly admit. And then the other one is that when you're on the circuit, apparently you never used to ask for petrol money if you drove people. Yeah. You're secretly nice, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Are both of those true? They are true, yeah. Crikey. Where did you get that info from? I'm quite interested in that. Is there a little 
book somewhere. Uh, who's stingy and who's not? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the um, the, uh, the the tour support uh, percentage paying that's a, that's a, a widely known fact about Joe Brand. I think on on the circuit, but it's the sort of thing obviously no one would have bothered saying to you on account of you being Joe Brand. I, ha- I funny I have had a few people ask me if they can go on tour with me. <laughs> No, I know why. Sorry, I've blown the gaff wide open. Well, that's I, it, it struck me as uh, unusual, given your propensity to claim to be grumpy. Do you feel that's... Un, is, is that unsettled you now, having uh, told an audience of people that you're secretly nice? Um, not too much, although that's about as much as I can take, so don't say any <laughs> other nice things about me. Well, the only other two I've got here, are, well, these, are, these are nice depending. Um, you've never done adverts, and you turned down the Royal Variety performance because you didn't want to be a hypocrite. Yeah. That's Good for fair. you! Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Brand! <laughs> but that's all the nice stuff. Yeah, OK, good. Let's get on to the horrible stuff. <laughs> I hate men. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm... Uh, I'm interested. You, you seem a little bashful about having that nice side of yourself revealed is it is it easy is that does it feel like it clashes with the persona that you you that you feel most comfortable projecting no i don't i don't think it's that at all i think it's just i'm really crap at people kind of being complimentary really i just never had any grace when people gave me compliments you know i didn't know how to take them i can remember once when i was probably about four or five and looking back on it, it he may have been a paedophile, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> this <laughs> guy that my dad knew, um, I was like out in the front garden and he walked past and he said, oh, you look really pretty today. And I went, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, then, and then he rang my parents up and told them and they had a good laugh about it and, and teased me about it for ages. And so after that, I thought that's obviously not the way to approach a compliment. Okay. I'll be bashful from now on. Okay. Well, let's start instead then. Let's start with your, uh, your beginnings in comedy, which were at the Tunnel Club with uh, Malcolm Hardy. Indeed. Is that right? Malcolm yes. convinced you to be a comedian. Oh, that's what. Malcolm, do you know who Malcolm Hardy is? Yes, yes or was, bless him. Um, he was just such a hilarious person. I think probably... The funniest person, not as a comic, but as himself, mm-hmm. that I've ever met, really. And I knocked about with him for a couple of years. And actually, I did meet him before I started doing stand-up. And he didn't really say that I should be a stand-up. And I'd be, he put a load of bollocks in his book about <laughs> discovering, you know, what, how brilliant I was. And all. It, none of it was true at all. But we did have a bloody good laugh together, and um, I kind of knew him very well uh, for a couple of years. I did stuff at the tunnel. I loved the tunnel club. And what I loved about the tunnel was that audiences would completely randomly decide whether to hate you or not. There was absolutely no rhyme or reason. So... It was nothing to do with whether you were funny or not, because Harry Enfield came on one night, this is years ago, and he was being brilliant, and they booed him off. (laughs) And then a a, a bloke came on after him, and he told a joke for ten minutes in (laughs) Serbo-Croat, and he got an encore. (laughs) And 
that's kind of what they were like there. So it was quite an entertaining place to be. Okay, okay. So I, because I, I, I'm, I'm obviously incorrect. I'd maybe assumed or heard that that was that the Tunnel Club was one of your first gigs. Do you remember your your first gig? I and do. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It wasn't. It was actually um, in Soho, it, and it wasn't even a comedy club. It was a. It was just like a dingy bar. Do you remember the name of it? Instead of no. No, okay. I don't even remember my husband's name, to be honest. So <laughs> it's highly unlikely that I could go back to 1986 and remember the name. Sorry. That's quite all right. <laughs> okay. So if, if it wasn't someone else convincing you to become a comic, do you remember what was going through your mind when you booked yourself on for that gig? Well, that actually was someone trying to persuade me because what, what happened was um, I, I'd, um, with my group of friends, would go out and I would just constantly go, oh, I really want to be a comedian. And they just got bored with me saying it, really. And then one of the women in the group, um, she um, helped to run a, a charity and they set up a, um, a gig with comics. And she said to me, right, here's your chance. It's, it's kind of tailor-made just go on at the end and do five minutes and stop moaning. So I said, okay. So I went on at that gig and did five minutes. Go on at the end. That yeah. is quite an unusual place to put someone on their very first well, gig. Well, I know. Well, they weren't very experienced, you know. <laughs> like, I don't know Like, if you go to a lot of benefits, but a lot of the time they don't really know what they're doing, bless them. So <laughs> they'll kind of get someone really popular like Ricky Gervais and they'll put him on in a 20-seater. And then think, oh, we haven't made very much money when he could have gone in an arena and yeah. made that much money for them. So um, I quite like that about some charities. They're kind of quite naive, really, and sweet. Um, and this is what this woman was like. It was a dingy club. It was like the worst place you could possibly do comedy. Um, and I went on at midnight, having never done a gig before. And had you, had you written jokes? Had you spent much yes. time writing jokes? I'd written, I'd, I'd written jokes. I'd spent ages on it. And I'd, um, because I did psychology at university and I thought Freud was very interesting, <laughs> I'd written like a really erudite five minutes that no one could possibly even fucking understand, I don't think. But I thought it was hilarious. So on I went and tried it. And because I'd been there since six o'clock and I was very nervous... I was drinking pints of lager, and I'd had about seven, I think. So I could barely stand up. And then add on top of that two comedians off the circuit, uh, a guy called Tony Green, who you may or may mm, not have not heard sure. of, legendary. Um, he, he was kind of more of a performance artist. He would, he would do things like he would go on stage and just hit himself on the head with a glass, and that, that would be his act. He was like that. Anyway, he's pissed most of the time. Um, but as soon as I got on stage, for some reason he was at this gig, I don't know why, and he just started chanting, fuck off, you fat cow, over and over again at me, until after two minutes, I did indeed fuck off. No, I, well, I'd heard that I had heard the story that, you, that you, your very first gig, you were heckled, fuck off, you fat cow, more than once. Yeah. I had no idea it was another comedian. Yeah. So, and talk about a baptism of fire. That's the sort of thing that m most people... When I started doing comedy, I probably started a lot later in my life than I could have done, probably through the fear of that sort of thing happening. Like, that's, that's everybody's worst nightmare as, a, as a, a new act. It is to some extent, but not if you've been a psychiatric nurse in a 24-hour emergency <laughs> clinic. 
it's actually very mild. Um, so from that point of view, um, it wasn't that bad to me. Also, because I was so pissed, as it may, you know, when you're pissed, you actually quite like people starting a fight. Yeah, it's so fucking what? Yeah. I kind of, in a way, I quite enjoyed it, you know. Did you, did you come back to it at the time? Did you try and put him down? Did you, do you remember what you did to manage the environment other than uh, leave? I, I, I kind of thought if I get to the end of each sentence and it makes sense, that's managed the environment enough for me. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't try anything, no. And do you, to what extent do you think that experience as a sort of memorable first gig experience, to what extent did that inform the comedian that you went on to become? Well, I think it taught me a lot because it, it, it taught me that 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 um, experience could, to some extent, be put to one side because it was organised by people that didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't in a traditional comedy club. The audience had never really been to any comedy. So I know this sounds a bit weird to say, but they didn't know how to behave as a comedy audience. They were kind of all over the place. Should we laugh now? Should we go to the toilet? What should we do? It was all a bit like that, you know. Um, so I kind of thought, well, I'll put that to one side and, and just mark that up to experience. And I'll do a couple of proper comedy clubs. And then if I'm shit in those as well, I'll stop doing it. And how did they go? Well, better. A lot, a lot better. <laughs> I mean, I'm pleased to. to say, yeah, they'd have to. I... I, I think I, always, I I remember like it was um it was a club in um New Cross it was called the Sick Parrot Club and it was run by Vic and Bob uh, and um my very first joke uh, that I did um, in a proper comedy club I thought this was hilarious right what I did was I had a blood capsule in my mouth and then when I knew I was going to go on in about two two minutes I would like suck it and make it so I had lots of liquid in my mouth I had a massive big white t-shirt on and I would go on and go <coughs> like that all over the t-shirt and go must give up smoking and I thought that was hilarious but actually only about a third of the audience did a third of them pissed themselves and the rest just kind of looked like I should be taken to hospital maybe they thought I meant it I don't know but anyway, I got a sort of clue from that gig that it could potentially go all right. So I kind of carried on. OK. And now it seems to me, I mean, I found that when I was learning about your past and I'd known that you'd been a psychiatric nurse and I wondered if I was kind of drawing the dots in too sort of simple a way of going, OK, obviously you're in your previous job. You had to deal with all sorts of really the sharp end of being a human being. You know, you really had to deal with a lot of tough things. It seems a bit easy to then go, oh, and that's probably what made you kind of indomitable as a comedian, kind of bomb proof as a comedian. But it does sound like what you're suggesting is that kind of is the case. Well, yeah, to some extent it is. But, you know, it, when I was a nurse, I didn't particularly like being <laughs> abused by people and I didn't really like it very much when I was a comedian either but actually to me what it was always about with an audience is audiences um, pick up kind of very subtle cues from comedians about whether they're struggling or not and if you can act like you really don't give a shit then actually they retain their confidence in you, whether you're dying on your ass or not. So actually what was a lot more valuable to me was to be able to act that I wasn't scared when I was. Because actually there were so many times when I was a, a nurse when I really was 
genuinely scared that I say a lot. It was probably a handful of times. I was genuinely scared that I might get really badly injured, if not worse. And it's in those situations that if you betray kind of any sense of falling apart, that makes things go worse. So I kind of learnt to act that I was all right and keep calm. And that makes a huge difference in those situations. And it kind of did when I was doing comedy as well. There is a certain, I think, um, uh, when Ramesh Ranganathan was on the show, he used to be a teacher, and there is something whereby former professionals in the teaching or the nursing industry or doctors have a sort of innate kind of, or maybe not an innate, maybe a learned calm and a kind of matter-of-factness. I was watching one of your um, very early gigs on YouTube from when you were the sea monster. Oh, yeah. Which was for the first year of your career? First? Yeah. Okay. And was that your, had you come up with that name? I think uh, that's another one Malcolm might have taken credit well, for. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was Malcolm's best friend, Martin Potter, he thought of it. Well, he used to call me it. Um, so, um, yeah, I know. It's all right. By that time, I was kind of used to <laughs> being addressed in quite odd ways. But um, can I just very quickly say, because um, I worked in a 24-hour emergency clinic in southeast London, and um, I still work there when I when I met Malcolm, and Malcolm's, uh, someone in Malcolm's family uh, suffered from um, bipolar uh, disorder. In the old days, we used to call that manic depressive psychosis, but it's not called that anymore. Anyway, she was brought in uh, by ambulance because she'd um, deteriorated quite badly, uh, and um, I was at lunch when that happened, and he actually came with her, and when I came back, the junior registrar that was dealing with it said to me, because I was in charge that day, he said, oh, I just need to hand over this case to you. We've got a woman here who's, who's uh, you know, um, at the sort of manic stage of bipolar disorder, but I'm a lot more worried about the guy that's brought her in. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what he was like, really. <laughs> People thought he was really disturbed, when actually he was perfectly <laughs> That's kind of why I liked him, <laughs> What were your feelings about calling your act the sea monster when it had been something that someone had sort of said as an insult? Well, I think, um, you know, if you're a fat person, right, you kind of get used to those sorts of insults. And I think, you know, I know it's kind of a real cliche to say, oh, uh, like, like fat people always try and be nice um, to people and they're self-deprecating, uh, you know, to try and... I don't know to try and what, to try and kind of um, deflect uh, abuse away from themselves. But, I mean, I actually think sort of self-deprecating humour is a very British thing, really. And and, and, and American humour is the opposite, you know. Like, <laughs> hey, I'm great. And, um, and, and British is like, I'm shit, and I'm going to get in a little huddle in the corner. And, yes, you've called me a horrible name. It's, it's true, I am that horrible name. Um, so I, I kind of like that sort of sense of, of British humour, that people kind of put themselves down, they won't big themselves up. I know not everyone's like that, but... Um, so that always kind of suited me, and I actually kind of thought it was rather hilarious, but that also it sort of set the tone for the kind of material I was going to do, you know, that I was going to come on and do jokes about myself. And I, like the whole, I always used to feel like when I first started, my whole act was all about saying, I can make funnier jokes about myself than you can heckle about me. Because hecklers don't practice at home, do you? <laughs> 
Well, I like to think they don't, because actually they'd be really shit if they did practice at home. Because a lot of heckles are, they're, they're exactly the same, you know. They're all along the lines of what is the most obvious thing about you. So, for example, with me, uh, you know, uh, fat, the comic like Lee Hurst, bald, um, you know, Ricky Grover, fat with a beard. Oh, me fat with a beard, come to that. But <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? It, people would always pick on the most obvious thing. And that is what you got every time, apart from the odd psycho down the comedy store on a Friday night. They were really horrid. You know, I, they, they were like um, Hannibal Lecter sometimes. I remember, uh, do you remember a comic called Julie Ballou? No. No, no she... she um, she kind of gave up, and quite rightly so, probably, because I think she struggled with it a lot. But at the store one night, in the late show, she went on first, and some guy in the front row said to her, I can smell your cunt. And it was like, mm, I, really don't, I really don't think that's acceptable. If someone said that sort of thing to me, I would not come back with a bit of jolly banter to that. Sure. If, if their face was there, I would try and kick them in it. But they didn't say that to me. So, you know, I couldn't. And I have, I, I did actually have, um, I was at Jongler's one night. Um, there was a, there was a stag night on the front table of, um, dentists. Dentists! <laughs> Middle class, nice boys from university. And one of them got on the, got on the table, unzipped his flies, got his cock out and just shouted, suck my cock, you fucking bitch at me. And I just wasn't in the mood. And I just, <laughs> I just thought, no, not tonight, Sonny. And, um, and I walked off stage and rather hilariously, I got told off by the promoter for coming off two minutes early. Jeez. I know. So it was, yeah, all very weird. And I never worked there again after that, so. So did you, did you have a toolkit then of, uh, of put-downs, of anti-heckling material? Or do you think it was more to do with your, your uh, manner that led to you becoming known for being so bulletproof? I had a, a kind of ascending um, in terms of their nuclear <laughs> energy um, set of put-downs, yeah, from kind of whimsical to this will kill you, hopefully. Um, and so, you know, I always knew if I had to start with the really bad put-down, then I might as well go home. Yeah. And that did happen on quite a number of occasions. Can you can you give us an example of a sort of a, a number one and a number ten? Strength? Okay, well, a number one would be something like if a guy was heckling me, I would say something to him like, "Where's your girlfriend outside grazing?" I presume, <laughs> which I looks kind of quite nice and friendly. Um, and <laughs> then, if they were being really, really, really horrible, I would say, "Shut the fuck up, or I'll sit on your face." And then I say, no, it's all right, I can't be bothered, haven't got my period at the moment. And <clears throat> you know what guys are like. Anything below the lady belt that you care to go into, you know, is it, it just kind of makes them start crying. So, well, it used to. And anyway, so that certainly did help. <laughs> Thank you.
So this is Jo. What a joy to talk to her. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, thank you to her for coming along. Uh, I will get stuck back into the interview very quickly. Now you've been following my life and the various technical wedding progress, <laughs> the wedding progress, uh, that is all done and dusted. I'm now officially married. However, um, I'm pre-recording this on the Thursday before it goes out because this weekend we're doing the big proper wedding that, uh, you know, the, the, the non-technical, non-legal actually proper, actually real wedding. So uh, I'll blitz through this. Just a quick listener email uh, before we get back into chatting to Joe. Um, an anonymous listener writes, I know this person didn't request anonymity, but I've changed some of the details here because I haven't had time to get back to them and check if it's okay if they read this out. So I'm just going for it. Let's, let's make them anonymous for now. And if it's you and you wanted your name to be read out, I'm terribly sorry. An anonymous listener writes... Thank you so much for the ComCom pod. This isn't going to be the usual email, you've got my interest, uh, about how you've given me the push to give it a go, mainly because I've already given it a go. And he proceeds to name some excellent people he worked with in his student days. Uh, he goes on, had your podcast been around at the time, I might have made more of a go at it, but I was training to be a teacher and that was my main focus. So fast forward a couple of decades and I wanted to let you know that your podcast is incredibly useful to me in my job. I'm ahead of year now and that involves standing in front of 240 streetwise kids. That is such a classic teacher thing to say is use the term streetwise like uh, like no one has done since the 80s uh, 240 streetwise kids every week and doing an assembly brilliantly all the stuff that gets talked about in your interviews I'm regretting now having to go about the term streetwise uh, brilliantly all the stuff that gets talked about in your interviews is exactly what I need to make those 20 minute sessions come alive if I'm talking about an overheard conversation on the tube to lead into an assembly on for example community I'll think about changing the statuses of the two characters involved if it makes the theme come across stronger this proves what we all suspected teachers lie or after quite a few of your guests talked about rearranging the order of a joke to make it work better I've gone back to assemblies that didn't quite work the way I wanted them to and seen oh if I put that bit there it makes that important bit stand out much more even the bloody rule of three has helped we're back on the bloody rule of three is actually we referred to from now on uh, basically all the things you've drawn out of your guests about how they make their comedy better are equally applicable to me in my non-comedic day job and I can't believe I'm the only one so on behalf of all the listeners who probably are comedy nerds but might also have an ulterior motive for listening in and taking notes thank you well thank you thanks very much uh, nearly said your name there let's keep you anonymous thank you very much for um, for writing that in I, I really appreciate that it's lovely to hear and what better way to remind you the listener about everyone's a comedian my little uh, podcast listening uh, crowd sourced comedy hour experiment which you can submit your own material at comedianscomedian.com forward slash experiment this is if you're not up to speed on this uh, I believe a world first and entirely crowd sourced hour in which I perform the half-written, half-assed, half-thought-out material of you, the listener, brackets that subset of you, the listener, who are never planning to go on stage and have not done so. This is only open to people who aren't professional comics. What I would like to do is to give an opportunity to have your work breathe, your ideas, anything you... If you always walk past a lamppost and you always think, oh, God, I had a great funny idea about a lamppost, but you have no intention to take it onto a stage, I will do it for you. Come to me. Come unto me. This is sounding increasingly increasingly messianic um but uh, send your stuff uh, you can submit it and um, also uh, uh, listener neil suggested that uh, i hadn't made entirely clear the legality of it um uh, i think it says on the forward slash experiment page uh, it says that you do, I, I don't know what it says but it, what I'm not asking you to do is waive all rights to the material if you write something funny and then I do it and you come along and see the show and go that is funny it belongs to you it's absolutely fine I'm not intending to keep it I just wanted to make sure um, in the quasi legalese bump that I've written on the page that uh, 
uh, if I, for example, record the show and then give it away free as a sort of fun publicity thing to promo the podcast, um, that you don't then write to me and go, hey, man, that was my stuff. So you are sort of giving it, you're loaning me the stuff. But that's the point, really. It, should, it shouldn't be stuff so much as potential stuff that I play around with. We see if it works. I take the hit if it doesn't, and uh, and then it belongs to you again. So that's all of that. Um, but you, if you want to be part of Everyone's a Comedian, if you want to see it, come along to the Edinburgh Festival, and as well as getting in to see uh, my show Like I Mean It, 3.45 every day at the Liquid Rooms Annex. Uh, the entrance is not on Cowgate, it's on the windy one. That You'll find it, you'll find it. Um, but uh, if you would like to come and see that, please do. And uh, if you would like to come and see Everyone's a Comedian, then when you submit your stuff, you will automatically be added to a database of all of the people who've submitted so I can try and invite you guys first because chances are I'm going to, I don't know where and when we're going to do it yet, I'm going to try and do it somewhere where you all are um, and, uh, and try and get as many of you who submitted stuff to it as possible to see the finished show but as I said I, I'm hoping to record it unless it's absolute dreck for which I will take all the responsibility because I'm sure your stuff is brimming with potential and um, then hopefully you will get the chance to see or hear it in some form but I think it'll be a fun thing to to try and turn up and see so that's all for now before we go back to joe of course thank you everybody that has donated to the show that supported the podcast with a regular monthly payment of for example two pounds although some people can and do pay more uh, or a one-off donation i re- really appreciate it it uh, is, is the only money that i make from the podcast on any sort of regular basis um, occasionally i will sell advertising on the odd episode but we're, that's way less than two percent of all episodes so um it's roughly two percent of all episodes which i don't think is an annoying number just yet if you've enjoyed it if you like it if you want to support it if you want to be one of the the knights in shining armor or ladies in shining armor who uh supports the show uh on the behalf of people who can't do so who are impecunious and uh, and are not able to support it and then the people who can afford it uh, they support it in lieu of them so uh, if you would like to be one of those heroes then feel free to go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate uh, and I think it's fair to say a lot of you get a lot out of this you write and tell me and uh, I always like hearing from people who write and tell me how much they're enjoying the show and also explain that uh, they're I mean you know the head teacher's salary that's got to be that's got to be something right you could chuck a donation my way couldn't you this is sounding a little bit uh, a little bit desperate, Daryl, so let's get rid of it. No, leave it. Sod it. Leave it in. I think any head teacher who's enjoying this show could probably make a tiny donation. Perhaps they could uh, uh, employ some of their children as minions on my behalf uh, if they're unable to contribute financially. So if you enjoyed the show, um, then uh, please, by all means, support it in any way that you like. And if not financially, then perhaps with a, a nice, warm iTunes review. And that's especially valuable to me if you're based outside the UK because they uh, they count for more. Um, they don't count for more, but you know, if someone's trying to discover the show in America and there's only two reviews, then it looks it looks small beer, a tiny potato, um, and uh, your support in magnifying that potato is greatly appreciated. Now let's get back, and not before time, on a more than usually rambling chat. Let's get back to Joe Brand. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, it's interesting because I wonder about your status on stage and how powerful you felt on stage because the a lot of your comedy that I've listened from from various kind of eras from various ages of Joe Brand um some of your material is about it seemed to me to part of the the mechanics of it are by putting yourself down you're then able to attack you've already put yourself down and you've talked about you know one of your sea monster lines was in the school play I always got picked to play Bethlehem yeah that, you know what I mean really <laughs> apologies for butchering this yeah. out <laughs> no you um, did it very well got a <laughs> laugh well done <laughs> you can have that one <laughs> <laughs> But you, you like short, punchy lines, which are very inventive jokes about you being fat or you being greedy or things that sort of put you down. Yeah. But there's something interesting in the status of it, because by accepting and magnifying these, for want of a better word, faults, you're actually putting yourself in a situation where because you've said it first, you, you're taking ownership of it and you're then able to use that sort of status transaction with the audience to then say some pretty vicious things about... I mean, I was listening back to something from the 90s, so uh, it was... There's a lot of material about David Meller and George Ma- uh, John Major and oh, uh, yes. stuff like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Grand National going wrong. It's very nostalgic listening to it. <laughs> but um, you're, you're able to be quite vicious because you've, you've placed yourself inside this sort of protective... You see what I mean? I do, absolutely. And I think, yes, I definitely, I mean, that was a conscious thing that I did. Because I think actually another thing that um, that British people like is they love an underdog fighting back, you know. So sometimes I would just come, particularly at the tunnel, because sometimes you would come on at the tunnel and there would just be a wall of abuse for like five minutes and a lot of people just couldn't take that and they would try and break into it. And I would just stand there and look at them, you know, like, yeah. And and then that would enable me. They would think, Christ, you know, she's lasted longer than we have. <laughs> so we'll allow her a bit of leeway to speak now. Because it was like a battle, like who's gonna give who's gonna give up first? And so yes, I kind of felt in many ways it did give me carte blanche to you know, to say some appalling things, really. And, and when you were standing there taking that wall of abuse, was that, how did that feel? Was that a case of you feeling like it was unpleasant or uncomfortable, but knowing that you were styling it out, knowing that you were giving the impression you didn't care? Or at that stage, did you actually not care because you were familiar enough with the club? No, I was giving the impression. I mean, I think the thing is, as as a performer, there are, you know, there, there are kind of... People think heckling is kind of a very sort of obvious thing that's easy to define, but it's actually not because I think there's so many different types of heckling. And as a performer, you can really tell who the really vicious misogynists are. 
from the heckling that they're doing. You know, like the sort of fuck off your fat cow is like, oh, you know, that's like grade one heckling, isn't it? <laughs> but people that get up to kind of grade seven, um, you know, misogynist heckling, uh, it, that is kind of really, uh, it's really cutting and it's really difficult to manage because you can see and hear the sort of hatred that the, the, the weird thing is, it's not actually for you. You just know that that's coming from of someone that really hates women. I mean, I've had, you know, several occasions when when that's happened and it's kind of been chilling in a way, really. Um, and it's kind of quite difficult to keep composed when you feel that it's so strong, uh, that kind of hate, hate and sort of bullying. And did you, it's, it's interesting, there's an, another comic called Milo McCabe who has a, a background in psychology who talked about um, dealing with hecklers by trying to appreciate the psychological forces acting on them. He said on the, on the show a couple of years ago, he talked about when someone is just chipping in, he, he can clock sometimes that they are the, the funny friend in that group and yeah. their, their status is being challenged. And actually, rather than slam them, one of Milo's theories is all you need to do is go, nice one. And then they go, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. I'm, so you've sort of reset yeah. it. I just wondered about whether your, your experience in psychiatry has enabled you to spot those sorts of things when you see i mean do you think that's more than than a usual comics amount of empathy to see a sort of horrible misogynist level seven heckler and try and recognize <laughs> that you know it's like we were talking before to recognize someone like we were talking about piers morgan to recognize that maybe <laughs> maybe someone behaves in a certain way because of the forces acting upon them uh yeah i i, I agree with you that that does happen but Basically, when you're doing a stand-up gig, who can be fucking asked to go into all that? <laughs> I just want them to shut the fuck up or go home, really, you know. Um, and actually, well, um, you know, I have, let, I have sort of let my temper get the better of me on a couple of occasions. Rather weirdly, I was at Loughborough University. I don't know if you, did you know Loughborough, it's very sporty, and there's a lot of kind of rugby jock types there. <laughs> But ironically, uh, while I was there, the security guard just really took a dislike to me. And I'm not joking, it was like being heckled by a serial killer. I mean, it was, it, it was I'm going to fucking rape you with a bottle, all this sort of thing. Not exactly a funny heckle, is it, really? And, and I, I, was, I was on uh, with Mark Lamar. Do you know Mark Lamar? Yeah, um, he, he's a good mate of mine, so don't heckle him. Uh, via me um no but uh, yeah he can be quite aggressive but actually I, I just thought this was like totally unacceptable this this sort of thing because it wasn't heckling it was just him giving rein to his hatred in a way and and actually i could tell really resenting the fact that i was kind of getting laughs from people uh, presumably what he considered thin-skinned personality disorder that he was um that you know um it, it wasn't on for me to do this and i went um i walked off stage and went and got a bottle in the dressing room smashed it on the table and went right you know because uh, i've got two brothers and i'm very good at fighting and um mark lamar god bless him he's not famed for this he took it off me and calmed me down because normally he would have been leading the charge you know because he loves a fight and um 
But yeah, so um, I mean, I was a bit pissed as well. So I'd had quite a few um, pills. So uh, yeah, um, so but that's kind of quite rare. But I, you know, I, I think the other thing, like as as a performer. Um, <clears throat> when I had periods, and don't worry, guys, I'm not going to go on about them. But I used to get really bad PMT, and I used to make the most of it when I was on stage. <laughs> but I also, it would make me take risks that I shouldn't probably have taken. Okay. Yeah. Like the bottle incident. Yeah, like that. And like saying to a Scottish audience in Glasgow, who the fuck won at Culloden then? <laughs> Yeah, I know. But that was PMT talking. I, when I thought about it, I thought, fuck, what did I do that for? I had to leave by the back door. And, um, yeah, so, you know, occasionally I would do really awful things like that and regret them. What were the gigs where you first felt like yourself on stage, where you first felt like this is... Because I noticed when you from the Sea Monster uh, set that I saw, the delivery was much slower. There was a lot more space in between the words and the punchlines. And the, it, it, it's, it's very different to how I'm familiar with you, the ease that you display on stage now. When did you first feel like you had stand-up by the throat rather than the other way around? Well, I think um, I got a review in Edinburgh saying that I should get a job reading the football results because my um, delivery was so slow and kind of mannered. And so I then kind of made a special effort to compare shows to sort of try and relax a bit. And I suppose when they started working and I started really enjoying them, um, that's kind of when I felt after maybe five or six years that I was getting somewhere with it. And do you do you feel that your persona on stage, when comics talk about finding their voice, is the the version of you that you're on stage? Is that a part of your personality? Is that a completely concocted thing? Is it very close to how you are off stage? Um, it's very close to how I am inside, <laughs> but off stage I'm kind of much nicer. Actually, no, uh, that's that's not quite. I um. There's, there's a bit of me that's very much like my on-stage persona, but it is a bit. It's not all of me. Thank God, or I would have been killed by now, I'm sure. <laughs> so when you were emceeing, were you writing, were you the sort of MC that wrote material and just did material when you were emceeing, or were you trying to improvise more and kind of throw yourself in? Because you're, you're your stand-up, I think, is very sort of punchline-driven. It's very punchline-dense. Are you much for having a chat with the audience? Did you ever kind of... Oh, yeah, I forced myself to do that, yeah, just to make me kind of loosen up a bit. And it, it is quite scary doing that, throwing yourself out. I mean, it's like it's like impro, isn't it? You never quite know whether you're going to come up with a funny line. And I used to... Do you know, do you know a comic called Fred McCauley? Yeah. Uh, he, he's a, a, Scott, a lovely guy, and he once did a line, and it just completely died on its arse. Uh, we were doing a gig together, and he said to the audience, that's the best that joke's ever gone. And um, I just thought, that's the right attitude to have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I, like when you do panel shows and that, if you, if you throw out a line and people just look at you like you're an idiot, there's nothing worse than that. It just makes your heart shrivel up as if you've been stabbed. But the thing is, like to go back and kind of keep have the confidence to keep doing it because it happens to everyone you know even the the people that we think are geniuses 
it happens to. So, you know, you've just, you've got to sort of put that behind you and just keep trying in a way. And I think actually that's why lots of women don't do panel shows because they feel that they're a kind of a, a, I mean, I think things have changed quite a lot actually over the last, well, however long I've been doing it, 25, 30 years. But, um, you know, I think in the old days, um, women just thought they were a long way behind men in terms of innate self-confidence and ability to kind of chirp up with something, throw it out and just hope it would work. I saw a, a clip of you on QI where, I mean, there are fewer panellists on QI, but I suppose you must have very frequently been the only woman on the panel, yeah. whatever panel shows you were doing. And there was a line where the sort of the feed line, Stephen Fry had said, um, so Joe, what's the difference between men and women? And you rolled your eyes and said, oh, I don't know, is it that men are really great and women are really shit? And it, <laughs> it, it made me snort, but it didn't get a laugh in the room. And it was really interesting because I wondered if that was kind of you commenting on the internal mechanisms of the panel game. Yeah. I, th I think so. Well, I think it's kind of like there are a lot of, you know, endlessly every year at Edinburgh time, there's endless articles, are women funny, you know, and and it just never goes away, that thing. And, and I think it's not just it's not just a, a gender thing. It's not just men that don't think women are funny. I think a lot of women don't think women are funny as well. You know, I've stood in in. Um, you know, in audiences, and I've seen like women go, oh, there's a woman on next, let's go to the bar, shall we, you know? And and so I think there's a, there, it is changing a lot, but there was a sort of general level of people just thinking women aren't as funny as blokes. I mean, first of all, uh, there's not nearly so many of us. You know, when I started up, I kind of counted roughly how many, um, what the gender split was on the circuit. And it was probably 15 women and 250 men. So, you know, if you're actually dividing it by, um, uh, you know, percentages, then you are only going to have one woman on a panel show. Because there's, there's no point you putting five, because then there's only 10 left holding the fort on the circuit, you know, do you know what I mean? So uh, from that point of view, and, and there are actually, there, there are men as well uh, that don't like combative panel shows. Um, you know, I remember doing um, Mock the Week with Robin Ince uh, years ago, and we both had a really shit time, and we both went, oh, we're never doing that again. And he is, it just didn't suit him either. You know, it's not a male-female thing, it's a... It's a kind of personality thing, really. So when it comes to, when it comes to your writing, you, you mentioned uh, earlier about your, the most recent time you toured, a couple of years ago. When you sit down to write a new show, what does it look like? What, are you writing on paper, in a pad? Are you just booking gigs and trying stuff out and recording it? What is the process of coming up with new stuff? look like? None of those fairly professional things that you've said. <laughs> I, well, for, I, I think there's two ways of doing a new show. There's the Lee Evans method, right, which is where he starts at the beginning of a year with a whole new, say, 90 minutes, most of which he's never tried before and it's a bit crap. And he tries that in a very small club, you know, in the Shetlands. So, <laughs> like, no one no one gets to see it before it's gone down the line. And then by the time he gets to September, October... He's in the O2 
doing it brilliantly, right? And obviously most of us aren't doing that because we can't sell out the O2. But, but that's his, he'd sort of build up to it and practice it along the way. And then there's the way I do it, and I think Jack D does this as well, because I've discussed it with him before, which is that you can't bear kind of not to get a laugh by being really shit for an hour and a half. So you pick your last set from last year, or in my case, 10 years ago, <laughs> whenever it was, I'm very lazy. And um, you, you, you pick bits of that that you like, and you pepper it through the new material, so that at least when they're looking at you blankly for five minutes or staring at the watches or go or texting their partners um sitting next to them she's a bit isn't she uh, then you at least kind of know that something's coming up and so what i hope will then happen as i you know as i tour it round is that gradually the balance of the new stuff will overtake the old stuff and then you start sort of dropping they're like little life belts that you hold on to as you go through the hour and if you can throw away all your life belts then you've then you've got a new hour or a new hour and a half or whatever it is i can never quite let go of all of them but i do try really hard to but i'm not very good at it so the individual the new the new elements the new jokes are you what what does it look like for them what what's the way that you approach a subject do you are you working from something that's annoyed you or something you've seen in a paper? Like, what's the genesis of the new material? Well, I think when you've been doing it for for um, as long as I have, because I started in 1986, desperation's the key word, really. <laughs> so um, you will get a joke anywhere. Basically, my brother's really funny, my older brother. So I ring him up and I go, "Have you heard anything funny lately?" So I'll. I'll get quite a bit from him. So that'll be like a paragraph. And then like, he's told me some fucking brilliant jokes. And I actually, I do tell some jokes that are jokes that everyone does. And for, weirdly, people don't seem to have heard them. So it's brilliant, you know. So there'll be that. There'll be like maybe... Which, um, which, which sorts of jokes do you mean when you say jokes that everyone does? Do you mean kind of public, like... Part, sort of pub Matt jokes. Into a bar yeah. Okay, like, um, well... Uh, the, the, do you know the one about if your lover's put on too much weight? I love this show. If your lover's put on too much weight, get them to walk three miles in the morning and three miles at night. And by the end of the week, the fat fucker will be 42 miles away. <laughs> so that, for example, is like I, a joke someone told him in the pub, you know. And I just think, fuck it. It doesn't belong to anyone. So, I'll, <laughs> so I always know people love that joke. So I'll do that, for example. So I, so that, and then, um, then I'll think of like what's happened to me in the last three months, right? Uh, anything exciting. So for example, um, me and my husband and kids got stuck in a lift for 45 minutes. Um, and that was quite hilarious because we had, um, the Lempster Fire Brigade. That's in Herefordshire. <laughs> who I, oh, you're from Herefordshire. Well done. You're not from Lempster, are you? No, I refuse to believe that. Are you in the fire brigade? That would be fucking brilliant, <laughs> wouldn't it? Anyway, I didn't realise, for example, the Lempster Fire Brigade doubled up as the Keystone Cops. So um, it was hilarious, basically, the whole thing, including, um, like, true stuff, like one of them going, um, can you sit down on the floor and brace yourselves? And us going, why? And them going, because we're going to try unhooking this cable. And us going... Fuck, what's going to happen? And them going, we don't know. Um, 
that sort of thing. Okay, so, okay. So that kind of will go in, sort of things that have happened, try and make them funny. And sometimes they already are funny, you know. Uh, and also kind of the way that actually people treat you when they know who you are, they've seen you on telly, I think that's hilarious as well. Um, you know, this bloke in Sainsbury's car park came up to me uh, last week and he went, oh, you're that really shit comedian. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, that's me. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so that kind of thing, okay. you know. Um, though They'll be just like short little one-liners. Obviously, um, I'll try and kind of do, um, you know, um, sort of contemporary newsy stuff. Um, and when I'm touring as well, I always get the local paper because I think it's a really good good way to get to know whether a place has a sense of humour about itself. And it's quite interesting because actually a lot of places really don't, you know. So if you take the piss out of them, they don't like it. Whereas other places, they bloody love it if you take the piss out of them. It's so interesting. So I'll do five minutes from the local paper um, and then I'll just have a few things that I'm personally kind of interested in. Um, you know, like stuff to do with women maybe, stuff to do with politics, that kind of thing. So I'll chuck a bit of that in as well. And then I will try and write maybe two or three actual routines about stuff with proper one-liners in them. Okay. But and it gets harder. It, it does really it? Do, yeah, it really does, yeah. Why do you think it gets harder? Because my brain's degenerating faster <laughs> than I would have liked. And I don't know, because I think you... I mean, I do think you kind of use up a lot of your good ideas at the beginning, and it gets harder to have good ideas. And also, you've done a lot of jokes, and you don't want to just keep repeating the same structure. Although I do, <laughs> every time. Um, is there an extent to which an audience, now that they, now that you're, you're kind of national treasure status... Oh, dear. Yeah, you are. No, I don't think that's true. I think someone like Julie Walters is, I, because people actually really like her. I, I, I think people are... I think the jury's out with me. I, but a, a lot of guys, I can just tell they're a bit wary when they meet me, you know. So, I, Whereas with Julie Walters, I think, oh, what a lovely woman. I could have a nice cup of tea with her. Because she is a genuinely, really lovely but, person. But what the people that love you love about you is that you don't give a fuck. Oh, OK. Oh, well, that's nice. I, I like you for saying that. Thank <laughs> you. Well, I like you anyway, but... Um, <laughs> No, and actually, I do think I kind of really divide people. You know, I can, I can tell sometimes... I've had people say the most awful stuff to me because I could just tell that they absolutely hated me. I do quite a lot of corporate um, events uh, where you kind of, you know, um, get to do the National Toilet Awards and things like that. And, and they, 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 when you're a comic performing at them, you're always a surprise. They don't tell the audience. And when I come on, I can hear sighs of despair sometimes because they want Jimmy Carr, you know, or, or they want Russell Howard. They don't want me. And I did an advertising awards once, and um, this one particular um, company just won everything. So I, I thought I was gently taking the piss out of them <laughs> every time they got another prize, right? And then they won the overall prize as well. And um, the CEO came up to collect it, and, and so I shook his hand and said, congratulations. And as I handed it over to him, in my ear, he whispered, um, I always knew you weren't funny, but I never realised what a cunt you were. <laughs> it's like 
crikey. Um, yeah, I know. And oh I, I just God. thought that was kind of, that's like really bullying thing to do. Because he obviously was hoping that I'd be so ashamed that he had whispered that to me. And I'd feel so bad that I would kind of, you know, slink away and, and cry for the rest of the night. So I kind of thought, fuck it, why should I put up with that? So I told the audience what he just God, said. God, so glad! And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it had a really kind of... Because when, when I said what he'd said, they all went, <gasps> like that, you know, they really could not believe it. And, and about 20 of his employees came round backstage afterwards and said he's a really unpleasant person. So I kind of felt a bit vindicated. <laughs> I would have felt bad if he was a vicar, but he wasn't. Do you ever feel that you over-relied on jokes about your weight? Um, well, I, I don't feel as I did, but actually I can see your point, and I think I probably did. But my, um, my approach to comedy is if people laugh at it, it's all right, you know. And I think everybody has their own sort of code of practice, don't they? So, for example, um, you know, I've, I've, I've made that statement to you, but it's not absolutely right, is it? Because Jim Davidson says things and people uh, laugh at them and they're not all right because he said some awful things or Bernard Manning or whoever it was. But um, I, I kind of feel like I have my own personal code of conduct and I feel that I'm not racist and... Um, I don't put down people with mental health problems, all things that are important to me. Um, and whereas those characters that sometimes people do laugh at their jokes, um, and I think there's an uncomfortable central area with someone like Al Murray, for example, who, as the pub landlord, does actually do kind of casually racist jokes. And I wonder, do some of those people realise that he's a character and it's meant to be ironic. And sometimes I don't think they do. So I think there's a weird kind of grey area in the middle. Um, so, yes, you're probably right. Yes, I probably have over-relied on those jokes. But if audiences went, oh, God, not another fat joke, or they fainted or went into a coma or wrote to the Times, um, I'd probably stop doing them. But, but as yet, um, they haven't. And I kind of feel that it's like, you know, I, I once went to a thing called a talent dinner at the BBC. <laughs> They're fucking hilarious, they are, where you, you go to a really posh restaurant and um, you, you're sat around a table with loads of people that work for the BBC. Um, and so there's like, um, uh, you know, like a controller. Love that. A controller, for fuck's sake. Um, uh, who's very important. And then there's, like, when I went, there was, like, Fiona Bruce and um, Alistair McGowan. And uh, I was sitting opposite Jeremy Clarkson, right? And um, so this controller guy, he goes, right, I want to find out a bit about what you think of the BBC. So he goes to me, Joe, let's start with you. So just to wind him up, I went, I think it'd be a really good idea if you took Jeremy Clarkson off the telly. And um, really just for a laugh. Uh, but he, was, he didn't think it was funny. And he just sort of exploded at me. Well, all you ever do is talk about periods, right? <laughs> so that made me go home and look at like the four hours of material I'd accrued thus far and time how much... <laughs> 
how much I actually did about periods just to see. And it was like three and a half minutes out of yeah. four hours. So um, I thought, I'll save that up for next time I see him. And I did tell him. And, um, yeah, so, um, you know, I think the thing is actually, it, it, it can, it, I, I'm not saying that you're not right, cause, but I think it can seem like that. That I do do that, uh, that, that sort of balance of jokes, but I try really hard and I genuinely do think that, that even though an audience has come to see me and they like me, they would still be bored shitless if I just did fat, 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 that, that for an hour. So, you know, I do, I am aware of that and I do at least try and think of an original way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think this, it's another, it's another tricky one. Yeah, it's the last God, tricky okay. one. Okay. Do you think that given that today people are much or there is there's a kind of a, a much more, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's much more of a progressive movement amongst people and maybe young people today that if someone is the butt of a joke for being fat even if that person is yourself then it's making fat or fatness out to be a negative trait in a way that it needn't be made. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? I do understand, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And, um, you know, I feel very reassured by that. I think, I think kind of um, uh, things have, have really changed. But, you know, uh, first of all, I don't think they've, they've changed that much uh, amongst a certain generation, which is my generation. But thankfully, we're all going to die soon, so... <laughs> Fat shaming will be the thing. Uh, no more. And, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. And I kind of rather rather sort of cheered by that in a way. Uh, but um, having said that, I still think it's funny. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm not going to stop, Stuart. So there. Brilliant. But no, no, yeah, no, I know what you're getting at. And, yes, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> there was uh, in my research of you and oh, I should say we, we've only got about five or ten minutes left so if it's all right with you I should invite people to ask you questions if they have any questions sure sure so uh, I've got another question while you have a bit of time to think of one if you would like to ask them and if you haven't I've got loads of others so it's not on you I'm just it's an opportunity right you get that right good but this is but, my audience as well what's going on this is <laughs> No, listen, don't feel you have to. You know like what it's like when you go for an interview and then at the end they go, have you got any questions? <laughs> Fuck, I wish I thought of a really intricate, intelligent-sounding one. And then you go, oh, where's the toilet? And um, you haven't got the job. It was only during my research of you as prep for this interview that I discovered there had been, and I don't quite understand the nature of it, but there was kind of like a hate campaign against you in the media. Is that fair? Tell me more. <laughs> is that is it? Because I, I couldn't. I oh, couldn't do you mean, get the uh, specifics of it? But it, it was like the sun. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It was Gar a guy called Gary Bushell sort okay, of led the yeah. charge. Basically, I think what happened was I, I went on a show and um, I can't even remember what it was. Um, and Gary Bushell reviewed it and said I was brilliant and I was really funny. And then I went on Wogan and slagged off Thatcher. And then he completely did an about turn okay. when he heard my political views. And then just started 
um, laying into me. But but the, the the thing about Gary Bushel was he, he was that he he did that to all women that he he kind of thought it was an insult for women that weren't particularly attractive to be in the public eye, and. Um, I mean, I'm not even going to say who this is about. It wasn't actually about me. It was about an, another. It was about an actress, and um, his comment about her was that she should be given a job at Heathrow sniffing parcels. And I think for that to be written in a national newspaper is an absolute fucking disgrace. And so I felt right. It's open season on Bushel now, and. Um, <laughs> So I went for it. And so that's why the feud continued for so long. Okay. Because I wouldn't let it, let it lie. So, it you, so you went for it in terms of your material? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I feel I would like to find out the way in which you went for it, but also I'm really happy for that sort of very pregnant pause to stay there and it, well, with no, its undercurrent I mean, I, of Well, threat. I would just do stuff like the, the, he, the sort of stuff he would do about me. So, for example, I'd say, Gary Bushell said this about me. Uh, he called me a hideous old boiler. And I went, you know, let's face it, he's not exactly an oil painting himself, is he? Not unless there is an oil painting called Constipated Warthog Licking Piss Off a Toilet Seat. <laughs> and... So, I just thought, yeah, so I'm going to do that, Gary, until one of us falls over. <laughs> and he fell over, I reckon. Because where the fuck is he now? Well, I tell you, he's working for the Sunday people. And how many people buy that? Seven. Anyway. <laughs> We talked uh, very briefly earlier on about uh, Damned, uh, a, a, a sitcom that yeah. you've uh, co-wrote with uh, Morwenna Banks and with Will Smith. Will Smith, Smith yeah. Um, and we didn't talk earlier on, but I'm aware of uh, getting on and then going forward. When you're writing, or and, and I believe a lot of that was improvised. Going forward, uh, was... yeah, going forward and uh, getting on was pretty much improvised. And uh, I suppose part of me, on the basis of what we've just talked about over the last hour, wants to ask, is that sort of through your own perceived laziness? <laughs> Rather than, like, to, some people are, like, desperate to turn in a, you know, a script, here's all the jokes, and you're much more of a... Uh, well, I am very lazy, and so to some extent it probably was, but it was also kind of an experiment to see, um, because I was actually a nurse, and I did work in those sort of situations... I kind of wanted to see what would happen if we did. Whereas with Damned, for example, that is very, very written. You know, we write actual jokes for that. And it's very kind of um, meticulously structured. So I kind of wanted to try both, really. Um, so it was slightly through laziness, but also... Because, I, because I, I've always felt, you know, with comedy, it doesn't have to just be funny. It can be really awfully, horribly sad as well um, in the same half an hour, you know. And so that was kind of an experiment to see if we could do kind of very poignant stuff. And I do think, like, that the lives of kind of elderly people are so fucking miserable um, sometimes and the way that they're treated to sort of try and get through that to that sort of ignorance through humour but also let some of it be sad as well. And the experience of performing both of those, one where it's your jokes that you've written or, or co-written, 
and another one where it's improvised around a, 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 a loose idea of a narrative. Which were most fun for you to actually perform in terms of your pleasure performing them? Oh, crikey, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think probably, because um, I, I told you I'm lazy, I hate learning lines as well. So probably the improvised bits were. But also, actually, I, I was kind of very worried about my acting skills because I, I got laughed out of a drama school audition. And um, so I, I cancelled all the others I had because I thought you had to go to drama school to be a comedian. And also, I... Um, I auditioned for um, a part in a series on ITV called Comics, written by Linda LaPlante, uh, for a part that was based on me. Didn't fucking get it. Because <laughs> I was so bad in the audition. And it was because... And also, I, I, I did Ab Fab as well, and I got a review from my other favourite reviewer, uh, who's a guy called Victor Lewis-Smith, who are saying that everyone was overacting apart from me who can't act at all. But actually, I did agree with him because when I look at it, it's painful because I was doing what I thought was acting, but actually it was just sort of being just totally exaggerating the part and it was terrible. Uh, so I was just worried when I did Getting On that I wouldn't be able to do it. And Peter Capaldi directed it. And... I get on really well with him and I said to him, look, if I'm shit, tell me, you know, because a lot of the time in this business, people won't tell you if you're crap, you know, and that's half the problem with a lot of shows that get on telly. You, you get kind of people with massive egos who think they're brilliant and everyone's too scared to tell them that the show they've written is not funny. Um, and so I said to him, if I can't act, just say, and I'll give it to someone else, you know. But he said it was all right, so I believed him. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've probably just uh, got a moment or two. If anyone does have a question, uh, raise a hand. So what is it that you love so much about stand-up comedy and what's kept you going over so many years? Um, I like the hours. You <laughs> <laughs> um, used to think, fucking brilliant, I'm going to work for 20 minutes today. Um and actually, you know, it gave me kind of a lot of freedom. I liked, what I also like about it is the way it opens doors into any area of life that you want to go into. So if, for example, you want to go to a polo match with Kenny Jones, who uh, used, to be, <laughs> used to be in the, it was the Rolling Stones, wasn't it? I think, or one of them anyway. Um, or if you want to meet Prince Charles or if you want to go to the House of Commons and be involved in you can do pretty much anything you want, which is like so fucking weird. Um, but I, <laughs> I kind of I do I do like that side of it. And I actually really genuinely, purely, without anything surrounding it, love making people laugh. I really that's my favourite thing. Thank you. That's a great answer, great question. Thank you. Any others? What a fantastic question. I'll just re repeat it for the, for the recording. Um, so this person is doing their first ever open mic gig tomorrow, which is definitely worth a round of applause, I think. Yeah. That's and, uh, and the question is, you have crippling anxiety. So to Joe, as a former psychiatric nurse, what would you recommend? And I guess as a comedian, what would you recommend for doing it? Absolutely. Well, the, the thing is, actually... Um, 
you know, everyone doing their first gig has crippling anxiety. So it's kind of a matter of scale, isn't it? And I'm sure you yourself um, have certain um, strategies that you use for, um, you know, making yourself feel calmer, uh, whether whether it's it's a breathing thing or a ritual. I mean, I used to have a series of really weird rituals before I went on to do with green toilet paper, mainly. Is that and, true? Yeah, is that true? it is true. It was, and rituals, it just you had to have it in your pocket? Or there was well, other... what happened was I had a real storming gig once and I had some green toilet paper in my pocket. So I, obviously being a twat, thought that was totally responsible for it. And... Um, so then every gig I did, and it was so bloody exhausting, I had to have some. And if I didn't have any, I had to run around a bloody supermarket. And then they stopped doing green. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> you hardly see it at all. And um, so, um, you know, in, in the end, I kind of weaned myself off it. Now, um, I'm not going to advise alcohol, although I did used to have like a bottle of lager before I went on because actually uh, that did kind of help my anxiety. But what I would say to you is lower your expectations. Everyone's first gig is shit, right? So, you know, don't, don't go on thinking if I don't storm this, my career's over. Be very honest with yourself and, and I'm sure you will. You'll say to yourself, I'm going to feel really, really anxious about this. But the whole point of dealing with anxiety is that the theory goes that it can only get to a certain point and then it starts to come down. Now, just be kind to yourself. If you get on there and you think, I can't cope, I'm going to faint, just get off. It's not going to kill you. No one's going to kill you. It's going to be fine. I always used to think that. If, if it's going really badly, there's no shame in getting off and trying again. So keep it simple. Don't try and do 20 minutes on, um, you know, quantum mechanics theory or something. Just have your jokes. Know them very well. Maybe arm yourself with a couple of little heckle put-downs just so you don't have to think something up on the spot, which is very hard to do when you're very anxious. And just keep it short and really, really good luck. Thank you, Joe. That was a fantastic answer, and I think that's an excellent point to leave it, uh, not least because I've just had a little flashing light shone at me. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can hear this uh, conversation when it goes out live next Monday, as well as over 200 other conversations like it at comedianscomedian.com on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for coming. Do you have anything to... Whoa, 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 whoa. Do, you, do you have anything to plug? Uh, no, I don't. I have a question. You've just heard it. Why do you want to listen to it again? <laughs> but, you know... Can we, can we just have a cheer from anyone who expects or intends to listen to this again? <laughs> All right, I accept I'm wrong. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, day. Joe Brand. <laughs> Spectacular advice there from Joe Brand at the end of that episode. Thank you so much to her for coming along. Thanks to everyone that came to that show, asked questions, everyone at Soho that helped me organise it, my dear friend Thelma, of course, for helping me connect with Joe, and um, and to all of you for listening to it. I, I really enjoyed that enormously, and one of the great pleasures of doing this podcast is sometimes before a live show or after one, um, I get a little bit of time to hang out with someone who is of truly heroic status in my life, and I, I just think Joe is such an 
exceptional comic and an exceptional comic voice. So it's just lovely to be able to hang out with her for 10 minutes beforehand and have a bit of a natter. So uh, I think everybody everybody won, right? The, the listener went on to have um, uh, a, gr- a great gig. Uh, you can, I don't know if the listener would be happy with me uh, publicising their um, uh, uh, contact or their social media details, but they did get in touch and said that they'd had a belter. So thank you very much uh, for letting me know that. Hey, listen, I'm trying to put something together with Penn from Penn and Teller. Uh, earlier this week, he tweeted, hey, I'm in London for a few days. They've got these shows coming up on the 18th and 19th of June at the Hammersmith Apollo. Those may not be the correct dates, but I think they are. And they're, they're around the rest of the country as well. And if you are a fan of Penn and Teller, and they have had an, a profound effect on my life since I first discovered their book, How to Play With Your Food, when I was aged something like 15, um, then by all means, you get yourself along and see them live. So what happened was he said on Twitter, hey, I'm in London. What should I do with a bit of time to kill? I said, you should be on my podcast. And like 30 of you liked the tweet, which meant that he got back to me. So we are hopefully putting something in. Can't guarantee it. But if you've got some questions for Penn, uh, then by all means, get involved at the Facebook group for this podcast, the Comedians Comedian Facebook group. I mean, you could have guessed that, but you can, it's easy to find. So, um, uh, that's all of that. Listen, I was going to post Amble, but I'm just not because I'm rattling through wedding prep for the big day. Hey, if you're thinking of getting married in, uh, in a sort of groovy alternative venue, like a field, just before you start having conversations, uh, about, you know, d- dresses and, uh, and food, just think of hiring toilets. That's a complicated business. Hiring tents, hiring extra wet weather tents, hiring carpet. Hiring, uh, you know, look, what I'm saying is, Jesus, (laughs) by the time you hear this, it will have been the magnificent success that I'm sure it's going to be. But um, it is pretty, it's a pretty busy time right now. So uh, I won't ramble with you uh, for my thoughts. Uh, just at the moment, but I promise you a, a big, long, dirty post-amble. And I tell you what else I promise you, I've got the T-shirt. I've got, you know, I've been banging on about these lovely um, uh, special horse T-shirts. Horse, of course, being a little secret catchphrase for the post-amblers. Um, but if you would like to support the show by wearing a T-shirt, and if you'd like to make yourself, it's subtle, right? It doesn't say Concom anywhere on it. Um, but, well, you could hardly call it subtle. It's a brilliant design. It's quite in your face. Um, but uh, it's, it's, a little, it's a little shibboleth, which we all know that means because we've all seen the West Wing. Um, it's a little secret signal to your other ComCom listening friendos um, that you are on board the ComCom train. So if you would like one, I'm going to do a pre-sales thing very soon. And if you go to... In fact, let's say now, and I'll make it live as I sit and do some typing on the train on the way home, the pre-sales are now live. He uh, he challenged himself to live up to. Um, if you go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash merch. You can find uh, your pre-sale things. They're a slightly discounted price if you want to get on board and uh, get one early. That pre-sale period will last, I think, two or three weeks just so everyone can jump on and then I'll get them to you hopefully in the next two or three weeks after that, depending on how many of them get sold. If we sell a disgusting amount of them, then it might slow down the process. So only get one if you really want one. But uh, I think they're ace. And uh, I will put up a picture of uh, me wearing my one. And you can all check out how great they are. So uh, so I'm, I'm really, I'm so thrilled with Polly Becker, uh, her fabulous designs for this shirt. So go to that address, get on the board the pre-sale, and, uh, and I will stick one in the post to you. And uh, hopefully you'll get it soon once all the wedding debrief has concluded. That's all for now. Thanks again for listening, and I will speak to you very soon with some cracking episodes that we have in the can. Remember, coming up soon, Barry Cryer, in the can. Simon Munnery, in the can. Nick Cody, in the can. 
Uh, Anne Edmonds can. Ivana Istigator can. Orlando Bloom can. Pendulet currently not in the can. Feeling very positive about it. One of those people I'm not. You know, I talked about the nerves I get before I uh, interview guests. I'm feeling less nervous about Pen because I feel like I know a shit ton of his work really well. I don't feel like I have the getting caught out thing. I really can. Like if I sat down, I could spend ten minutes just writing quote after quote of their stuff and all the rest of it. So, so that should be a lot of fun. Not currently in the can. Fingers crossed. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.